So hello, uh, welcome to the first attempt at an experiment here at the Marxist Sociology blog. Uh, after th about three years of being uh, all writing all the time, uh, we are trying out something new here with our first ever podcast episode. I can't say for sure if this is going to be a recurring feature of the blog, but we're going to give it a try. Uh, my name is Barry Eidlin. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at McGill University and one of the commissioning editors here at the Marxist Sociology blog. And we are the official blog of the section on Marxist sociology of the American Sociological Association. And you can find us online at www.marxistsociology.org. So we're talking about COVID today. Uh, the COVID pandemic has upended all of our lives. On the one hand, even for those of us not directly touched by the virus in terms of those who've been infected or have had uh, friends or loved ones uh, infected and, and, and hurt and even killed by the virus, um, it has forced us apart from each other. It has highlighted and exacerbated existing inequalities exposing the divides between those who can work from home and those who either have been forced to put themselves in harm's way by going into work or who have seen their livelihoods destroyed because they cannot go into work. It has laid bare the profound gaps in our care infrastructure, shouldering parents with the impossible burden of caring for their children while proceeding as if everything at work is basically normal when it is anything but. On the other hand, the pandemic has blown a huge hole in the logic of fiscal austerity that has loomed large over the political landscape of the past several decades. It has provided an object lesson in the power of what government can do when there is political will. Against the constant mantra of we can't afford it, we saw that indeed we can come up with trillions of dollars to direct towards human needs the same way we can come up with trillions of dollars to fund endless wars or tax cuts for the rich. While the actual policy responses, both in the US and abroad, have been far short of what's necessary, they've also been at a level both in size and scope that would have been unimaginable for social policy just a few years ago, particularly in the US. Needless to say, at the same time as these pandemic-related contradictions and life-changing events have created so many personal and political problems to solve, they've also generated tremendous amounts of new scholarship as we academics have dug into trying to understand this new world around us as it has unfolded. And that brings us to today's interview. So we're honored to have with us today as our first guest, uh, Elizabeth Wrigley-Field. She is an assistant professor in the sociology department and Minnesota Population Center at the University of Minnesota. Her research focuses on racial inequality, historical infectious disease, and COVID-19 mortality in the United States, which is what she's going to be talking about today. She's also a demographic methodologist who develops new methods of shifting between micro and macro level perspectives. So we've invited her here today to discuss some exciting new research of hers related to the COVID pandemic and two papers in particular. One of them is, a, I would say, a thought experiment of sorts, comparing black mortality and life expectancy at its best against 
life mortality and life expectancy in a pandemic. And the other is more policy-focused, uh, more policy-focused intervention, trying to assess the most equitable means of vaccine distribution. So, Elizabeth Wrigley Field, welcome to the inaugural experimental episode of the Marxist Sociology Blog Podcast. Thanks, Barry. I am honored to be the subject of a Marxist sociology blog experiment. (laughs) Actually, uh, I was thinking I should start off by thanking you for suggesting uh, the idea of doing this podcast, uh, as it really was your idea in the first place. I made it seem like we had this great idea that why don't we branch out into podcasts? But it was actually that I wanted you to do the sort of boring usual thing and just have you write up a piece on your research but then you suggested why don't we do an interview and so here we are so thank you for for thinking of this experiment in the first place it's a melding of minds yes is a mind meld if there ever was one for sure so anyway let's let's dig in um and and i want to start with the first paper um which is one that was published in the proceedings of the national academy of sciences and this one is measuring um, black mortality and life expectancy at its peak against white mortality and life expectancy in a pandemic. So first of all, I just want you to start at a basic level and briefly state the key findings of the study. Yeah. So um, the backdrop to this study is um, something that I found earlier when I was studying the 1918 flu. Um, and this was with um, two collaborators of mine, James Feigenbaum and Chris Muller. And we did this study of um, historical infectious disease in the early 20th century. And we found this really striking, what we thought was a regional story where the South is really different from everywhere else. And in the course of exploring that, we realized this is not really about region per se, or rather what it is about region is about the way that racism is encoded into regions, because what we had really found was a story of tremendous racial inequality. And the thing that we found that really um, was stunning to me was that uh, black mortality in every other year before the 1918 flu uh, was more than white mortality was in the flu. And this was looking specifically at infectious disease mortality and it's looking specifically in cities. Um, so that was the kind of boundaries around that claim. But, but in other words, we found that this level of um, mortality that we treat as just completely historically unprecedented, the 1918 flu pandemic, it's almost literally off the charts. We sometimes um, leave it off charts because it, it distorts the graph scale. The mortality is so high that year. Um, and unlike every other year. And what we found is that, well, okay, but the white version of that experience was just the year in, year out experience for black people living in cities. And that was stunning to us. We actually didn't believe it at first. We checked the results many, many, many different ways um, until we were totally satisfied that it is true. Um, And so that, that was the backdrop. And so in the early phases of the COVID pandemic being recognized in the United States, it occurred to me to wonder, could it be possible that the same thing would be true this time around? In other words, could it be possible that white mortality during this pandemic would be more than black mortality has ever been up until now? 
And I was at a disadvantage in trying to answer that question because when I started thinking about this, it was May of 2020. And so, of course, I had no idea how much mortality is there going to be in the COVID pandemic in the United States for white people or for anyone else. And so I decided to go the other way around and ask, well, how high would white mortality have to be from the COVID pandemic in order for white mortality in 2020 to rise to the levels of the best ever black mortality? Um, and what I found is there's Being a the kind lowest. of range. Wait, what? Did I say Being something reverse? No, 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 no. I just want to be clear to our listeners that when you're talking about the best ever black mortality, you're talking about the lowest, yes, the lowest ever. Black. That's yes. right. Yeah. I wanted to double check because I often do reverse things out loud, oh. Um, oh, which okay. is a terrible trait in a statistics teacher and demographic modeling teacher, which I am. Um, but I like to think it keeps my students on their toes. But yeah, so the lowest ever black mortality, also white mortality was in 2014. Um, so it, it was before the opioid um, pandemic uh, and crisis really took hold. Um, and so that was the 2014 black mortality was what I used as my benchmark. And so the question is, well, how many white people would have to die in 2020 to look like uh, the black population's mortality in 2014? Mm -hmm. And so then, so 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 then, what? So I guess we're 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 going in a bit reverse order. I was going to ask you where the research came from, but but so what did you find? So so this is this is the so, um, is the key thing then. Yeah. So I I I was um, taken aback by these results. So I found that to get the same age-adjusted death rates, and I can say a little bit more about what that means, but this is kind of like mm -hmm. the workhorse mortality measure. Um, of the black population in 2014, the white population in 2020 would have had to have at least around 400,000 excess deaths um, in the COVID pandemic. And in order for white life expectancy to plummet down to the best ever level of black life expectancy would take um, between 700,000 and a million excess white deaths in 2020. And those ranges are because it depends on exactly what ages those extra deaths are happening at. And so I looked at that under some different uh, kind of plausible assumptions. Um, but those numbers basically are really high. And yeah. so we don't have the final mortality figures for 2020 yet. So we don't have the, the reality to benchmark that against. Um, but from what we do know, kind of piecing together the excess mortality that we had in October and some other statistics that we know about 2020, uh, my guess is that the um, white excess mortality is going to be maybe 300,000, maybe as high as 350, um, but not 400,000, uh, which is all a way of saying that um, even in this completely devastating last year, white mortality, I believe, will turn out to have been less than black mortality has ever been in the United States. Wow, really shocking findings. So what, so what, were, what, what were you expecting to find? Did, did you have much in the way of expectations? I mean, you had this expectation from the, from the 1918 pandemic, but were, was there, was there, what was your expectation going in? I didn't have a number, but I also was really floored that it was so high. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of the context of that is 
you know, I started working on this in May and I got, I got the bulk of the analysis together in June of 2020. And so if you think about what that time period was like, um, you know, we had all just had our lives majorly upended by this pandemic. We all, by that point, kind of had taken on board, I think, the idea that this was um, this, you know, once in a century, unprecedented experience that was going to really radically change our lives. And so to also take on board the idea that, well, but what that mortality level is going to mean in the white population is maybe something like the year in year out reality for black people in the United States. Um, that was a very um, sobering idea. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to, to um, I guess I wanted to get a few of these technical things out of the way before we dig into some of the significance of the findings. So, so first of all, you did mention about the sort of the, this age structure adjustment. If you could just sort of briefly sort of talk about like how you had to adjust the the, the results to to adjust the age structure for the two groups. Yeah. So if you make mortality comparisons between two populations and you don't adjust for age, most of the time, all your comparison is going to tell you is which population is older um, because mortality is so sensitive to age. It, it increases so much as we get older. And that's true for all mortality. And it's really true for COVID mortality. And in the United States, the white population is a lot older than uh, populations of color. Um, in the national level, it's about 10 years older on mm -hmm. average. And so that actually makes a big difference to mortality. And so um, in the population as a whole, white people die at a higher rate than black people do every year. Um, and what that reflects is that age difference. So what you wanna be able to do is make a kind of apples to apples comparison where you're comparing people who are the same age as each other, but still reflecting that in a single number. And the main way that we do that is called age standardization. And it's basically just, you take the age specific death rates. So the death rates for black and white 40 year olds and 45 year olds and so on and so forth. And you just weight them according to the same set of weights. And the weights that I used are the age structure of the United States as a whole. I see, okay, cool. Um, and so that was one technical thing. And then the, the other um, one, just for those of us who are, are less versed in, in quantitative data analysis, can you just explain briefly why it was that you needed so many more deaths to create sort of this, I guess, racial parity, for lack of a better term, uh, in terms of life expectancy as opposed to the mortality rates? So why you need the 700 to a million versus the 400,000? Yeah. So mortality rates are telling you how many people are dying in a certain amount of time, like over the course of the year. And life expectancy is telling you um, if you had, if you took everyone from birth and then they all experienced these death rates over their lives, how long would they live? And a consequence of asking that kind of question, how long would they live, is that deaths that happen at young ages matter more than deaths that happen later. And this makes some intuitive sense if you think about it. Um, so if someone dies uh, as a 10-year-old, they might have many, many decades of life that they would have had if they hadn't died. If someone dies as an 80-year-old, they might have you know, a, a decent amount of life left, but it's not going to be many, many decades. And so 
um, the 80-year-old's death is going to have a smaller impact on life expectancy than the 10-year-old's death is. Mm -hmm. And because COVID deaths um, and deaths in general tend to happen at older ages, um, that it takes more of them to amass this big difference in life expectancy. Um, yeah. The black-white life expectancy gap is um, really driven by young ages, both infant and childhood, and then also young adult and adolescent ages. Um, and so uh, it, it doesn't take uh, such a large number of deaths at those ages as it does at old ages to equal the same life expectancy difference. That's, I, I, I see some parallels maybe with like the wealth gap, like you're, like you, you're, you're building up, you have to sort of build up a certain, like white, whites are, have a sort of built-in advantage over life expectancy, just, and it takes a lot more to reverse that piled-on advantage over many years. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like, I mean, there's a lot of debate always about what's a good, what's the right metric mm -hmm. Um and some, in some contexts, I think life expectancy can be really misleading because it, it does weight deaths in a way that can be counterintuitive. On the other hand, there's a sense in which I think it is the most human measure um, because our lifespan is something that we really care about. And it is very meaningful when people die young. And that is the nature of the deaths that we're talking about when we talk about black-white disparities. So... Yeah, um, people who's, who, who had their life ahead of them and are taken away from us. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, that, that, that's really, really, uh, really helpful sort of on the, on the technical side of things. And I really appreciate you being able to sort of express that for, for, for a broader audience. So uh, another, another thing I'm interested in is if, if you could sort of break down the aggregate findings of it. And I'm particularly interested to see how these main results vary when you factor in these other variables like income, education, region, location, which obviously is are previewing some findings from your second paper. But for now, we'll just focus on this, uh, uh, what, what, what you found when you sort of broke, it, broke down the general results. So in this study, I did not look at any covariates at all. You know, I was mm -hmm. making, a, I was finding this descriptive argument and I was using it to make this kind of ethical argument about how should we respond to these disparities. Um, but I think the question about what is the relationship of these disparities in survival to inequality in economic outcomes um, is a really important question and also a really complicated one. Um, some things that we know in general are um, racial disparities exist at all points in the socioeconomic spectrum. They're often largest um, when people are more disadvantaged. Um, that's not always true, but that's typically true, and that's true for most health outcomes. Um, in the few, surprisingly few studies that have tried to do kind of systematic decompositions of the racial disparity in total um, in, in mortality into economic components. Um, so like there's a, a very good study by um, uh, Michael Geruso um, who finds that if you just uh, decompose the black white life expectancy gap into things like income, education, like some basic socioeconomic variables, you can statistically account for like three quarters of that life expectancy gap. Um, wow. and does that mean that if you simply equalized economic outcomes that you would 
reduce the black-white life expectancy gap by three quarters? No, it does not. Um, because some of those um, income gaps and education gaps and other SES gaps are reflecting the way that we sort people um, and the sorting mechanisms are also related to how we sort people by health, right? They're, they're related to how we then sort people into neighborhoods that have different levels of toxicity, um, how we treat people differently as agents of the state, as police, um, and all of these other things. And so that's not to say that all the work is happening through economics, but it tells us that these are actually very tightly linked. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'll, I was going to ask a bit more about, about the, uh, the across groups. So if you include the covariate, so like, you know, to what extent, you know, you have, if you're comparing like rich blacks with poor whites or something like that. But I mean, I guess that, that, that sort of uh, part of the, uh, the part of the hallmark of great research is that it spawns more great research. And so I guess that that's sort of uh, you're laying out yours or another scholars' future uh, research agenda ideas. Um, can you tell me a bit about um, what the reaction has been to these findings so far, what you've, what you've heard back and what, what kinds of reactions there have been? I got a, a, a lot of reaction. Um, so I should say we haven't really talked yet about the argument that I made around these findings in my piece, um, but... Mm -hmm. I tried to use them to make a very pointed argument, which is um, in response to the COVID pandemic, we shut down the world. And, you know, I always have to say that, um, you know, there's sometimes like a skeptical reaction when I say that, because I think a lot of us, myself included, have the vantage point of thinking about all the things that we could have done and didn't do as a society to make the pandemic safer and to make it livable for it to be safe. Um, and, and there's so much that wasn't done, but mm -hmm. if you can just abstract from that a minute uh, and, and think about all that was done, it, it's really astonishing. You know, for me, it was about 10 days in March, 2020, that really radically reoriented all of my plans for the next two years of my life. Um, and so I, I use that to say, you know, this is how we respond to this threat of mass death well, why don't we have the same response to the same scale of deaths happening year in and year out for black people in the United States? Um, and there's this way that when you propose radical change um, to combat racism, you get this kind of immediate response of like, oh, that's not realistic, or like, well, we have to go kind of slowly and step-by-step step and, I believe that the pandemic should really throw, blow that response out of the water um, because we have seen that we can completely upend the way that our workplaces are organized, the way we think about our family life, the, our movement patterns, you know, all these aspects of our daily life um, to save lives if we decide to. Um, and it, so it, it makes it very clear that when it comes to racism, we have decided not to do that. So that's the argument I made. And I have gotten uh, a lot of feedback that that argument, I think really, for some people really affected the way that they think. Um, and for some people, I think also was very validating, um, you know, because the, just thinking about the, the slogan, Black Lives Matter, you know, the core of this argument to me is like, 
let's actually just reflect on how little we have as a society have acted as though black lives matter. Um, and here's this um, kind of stunning um, way to, to see that anew. Yeah. Um, to, so, to show, um, so showing was, how, <laughs> that black lives don't matter, you know, in, in, yeah, in, exactly. in, and you've got the, and you've got the data to show it. Yeah, exactly. And so it should force us to think like, well, if we actually were going to act as though black lives matter, what would we have to do? Exactly. Yeah. And I'm going to, um, I want to save that for, for, for a little bit, uh, for, for my next question, but well, for my question after this, but, but I, I did want to sort of ask you to, I know this is asking you to speak beyond what your data actually um, has, but data show, but I, I would like you to talk a little bit about what you think is actually driving this massive disparity in mortality and life expectancy. So, you know, like at, at, the, at one level, the answer is obvious, right? And that it's, it, it's a clear example of how racism works in society and we can sort of leave it, leave it there. Um, but I'd like to hear you sort of unpack about how you think racism works more explicitly. And, and I'm asking this because I, I often get a sense that people have trouble really thinking through the systemic part of systemic racism. It's a phrase we throw around a lot, but, but it, 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 it's often hard to sort of unpack what that actually means. So on the one hand, you know, we're sociologists, we understand that race is a social construct with no material basis in genetics or reality. So these differences are not arising from some sort of inherent genetic difference. Um, on the other hand, I think we tend to sort of conflate racism or racial discrimination uh, with sort of individual prejudice, sometimes maybe backed with power, depending on who's talking. Um, so by that measure, we might understand systemic racism as sort of individual Black people getting treated differently and worse repeatedly over in a bunch of different types of social interactions over time, and they all sort of add up together to this massive disparity in morality. But, you know, I suspect that there's something deeper going on. And, you know, so would you say that's accurate in this case? And if so, you know, how would you explain what's actually going on behind these headline findings that you've got? I mean, I think what's tricky about answering this question is that the, the answer to how does this work is, I think, well, it works through everything. Mm -hmm. um, so we in the United States, we distribute health through the market to an extraordinary degree, um, even relative to um, other countries. And so... And then we also have crystallized through generations of accumulated racism, um, uh, vast, vast disparities in wealth that people start out their lives with. And then that structures everything. It structures where you live, where you live, structures what kinds of uh, toxic exposures will be in your water and in your air and in your home in paint. Um, it structures what kind of schooling you'll have access to. Um, so all of those things matter before you even enter the labor market yourself, where there's, of course, then a huge stratifying force that will affect the rest of your life, right? So all, all of those things, I think, are hugely consequential to health and some of the major mechanisms where health stratification is probably playing out. 
But I also think like, I, I don't want to set that up in any way as an alternative to the kind of day in day out experience of being treated worse by almost everybody and by every social institution because I think that that is also really baked into all of these processes and that matters to health as well. Sometimes I, I think it's likely that it matters in some very direct ways sometimes. And so one of the things I think is, um, for me, a big open question in this area is, so if we're thinking about like, where do we wanna focus changing things? Is it inside the medical system? Is it outside the medical system? Like, that's a tricky question to answer. Um, there's a, a study that I think is really incredible by Marcella Olson and some of her colleagues where what they did is they set up a, a clinic, a health clinic in Oakland, and they got a bunch of black male doctors, and then they also had a bunch of white and Asian male doctors, and black male patients were randomized to have a doctor who was black or who was not black, um, and the patients who saw black doctors were uh, so much more likely to embrace seeking more healthcare, having preventative healthcare, getting things like flu shots, getting diabetes screenings, some of the things that we think actually matter. Um, and so like Olson and her colleagues argue that the, the, the difference is so great that simply having more black male doctors could actually close 19% of the cardiovascular health gap between black and white men, which is like, you just never, ever, ever <laughs> see effect sizes that big, like not ever, right? So that's a totally stunning finding. And so, but where I'm going with this is you could look at that and say, okay, well, this is happening. This stratification is happening through the health system. And so that means the key is to provide more black doctors. And we understand that there's um, all of these reasons about racism, why there aren't more black male doctors. Um, and we can talk more about what some of those are if you want, but like, we understand that that's about racism, but, but that seems like the key. On the other hand, you could say, well, okay, but the context in which it really matters if you get your preventative health screenings uh, for things like cardiovascular disease is a context in which you're likely to have cardiovascular disease because the whole rest of your life is set up in a way that puts you at risk, that puts you at in toxic stress every day, um, that leaves you without enough sleep every day. And so, you know, which of these is the key? Is that even the right question or is that even an answerable question? Um, so that's why I, I, I think the, the question about like, what are the pathways here, I, I find, um, tricky because it really does feel like, well, the answer is all of the pathways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, it is a tricky question, but I think it is helpful to sort of talk about some of these concrete things that you, that, that you laid out. And obviously it, it, we can't, we can't obviously just say it is definitely this one thing that's like the key to everything. But I think you provide some really great concrete examples of, you know, beyond just sort of saying like, this is racism, like actually sort of like unpacking what do we mean when we say that. Um, so, so wrapping up our discussion of, um, of the, the first paper and sort of, and you, you sort of laid out this powerful argument you have. And, and in the last line of the paper, you have this really fat, fantastic last line that, 
that reads, quote, our, our imagination and social ambition should not be limited by how accustomed the United States is to profound racial inequality. So to close out the discussion, I'd like to hear you talk more about what it would look like to not limit our imagination and social ambition. You know, so I, I wrote that last summer and I live in Minneapolis. And so I was writing this um, after having participated in the um, uprising for justice for George Floyd. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly never expected my own police precincts to burn down. Um, it, I was uh, amazed and inspired when it did. Um, and I never expected defund the police to become a slogan that um, would so quickly have resonance for so many people and, and for abolition to become a kind of serious discussion um, in much larger pockets of the mainstream than mm -hmm. it had been. Um, and so I think that that was one of the things that was really on my mind when I was writing this is thinking about how much policy discussion, how, how much the left sometimes kind of shoots itself in the foot or like muzzles ourselves before we ever even say what we want, because we just assume that we can't have it and are starting and, and, and that's our starting assumption. And so then we try to figure out, well, what's the palatable version that's like a little step forward. And so I don't know all of the things that need to happen to right these wrongs. Um, I truly don't, but the thing I felt the most, you know, I, I, I mean, I can, I can imagine things. Um, I've started thinking a lot about what could health reparations look like. Um, so we think a lot about reparations for slavery and that the, there's some very detailed and really like uh, inspiring and impressive and I think very convincing proposals um, that are all based around wealth being the key. And that makes sense because wealth is like the major way that power is organized. Um, if you asked me like, what's the single best proxy for someone's power, I would say their wealth. And that, that makes sense as a, as a way to try to right the wrongs of racism. But I've also started thinking about like, well, if wealth is the proxy for power, maybe the proxy for freedom is time. And if we think about all of these deaths as just the theft of all of this time that people should have had in their lives um, that they won't have, um, most for the people who die, but also for their loved ones, right? Who don't get to have, um, have that overlap in life. Um, you know, what would it look like to try to um, make that right? So. I think at a minimum, you know, we could think really radically about what healthcare should look like and what would it mean to have like a mass infusion of um, training new black medical workers um, and creating new medical centers all across the United States. Um, we could think about mass environmental cleanups. We could think about all kinds of things, but I guess the, the part that I feel the most committed to is actually none of these specific policy ideas, um, but rather like the radical scale of action and the idea that just in the same way that a lot of us thought we should do whatever it takes to try to keep people safe from COVID, we should say we have to do whatever it takes to try to stop these deaths that happen from racism every year. 
Great. Very few demographers, I think, are able to bring in bring an audience that have the tears welling up, but uh, you do a great job of that. Um, so uh, just as a reminder to people listening, we're here uh, in conversation with uh, Professor uh, Elizabeth Wrigley-Field, demographer at the uh, University of Minnesota. So I want to move on to this other paper you wrote, which I said is, like I said, is much more policy oriented. I believe it's, it's more of a report, right? If I understand that. that um, so if you could talk a bit just about what the, what the brief was for the report, what the purpose was, um, and just sort of start by just, uh, and, and it's really about, the, the, it focuses on this question of equitable strategies for, for vaccine distribution. So, so whereas the first one is this thought experiment using COVID to think more broadly about racism in US society, this one is much more focused about COVID itself and how do we fight it with, with, with our, our vaccination strategy. So can you just talk a bit about the context of like what you were asked to do? What was the problem that your research team was trying to solve? So where this came from, so this is, um, I, I led a Minnesota and California research team. So I've been part of an ongoing research team with a really great guy named JP Leiter in Minnesota that's using death certificate data to look at COVID deaths in our state in Minnesota. And then there's a similar team in California um, that has death certificate data there. And that's significant because most states actually have not made these data available to researchers. So there's a lot about COVID that we could know about 2020 that we don't um, because the data just aren't there. And so here's two states where they are. And um, in very the, different states, which helps too. Very different states demographically, very, very different. Um, and in most states, including these, the way that vaccination unfolded was heavily age-based. And in Minnesota, that was uh, almost exclusively true. So everyone did healthcare workers and long-term care residents first, and that was the right thing to do. And then after that, in most places, including here, there was an age cutoff, and then it sort of proceeded by age. And then some states started to incorporate other um, dimensions of risk before others. But so here in Minnesota, from January to March, it was basically like, if you're 65 plus, you're eligible. If you're younger than 65, you're not eligible if you weren't like a healthcare worker. And we used the death certificates um, from Minnesota and California uh, to look at who was actually at risk of COVID to evaluate what does it mean to have this age-based vaccination eligibility and so the first thing we argue is that age-based vaccine eligibility in the context of the United States systematically prioritizes lower risk white people above higher risk people of color. And this again goes partly back to those age compositional differences. So for example, um, if you um, are looking at, if you said we're gonna take out all of the deaths in 2020 that happened above age 65, in Minnesota, in the white population, you would have taken out two thirds of the deaths. For populations of color, you would have taken out less than half. Wow. So just on a basic level to say, we're gonna get rid of these deaths that happen at old ages is prioritizing white deaths. And that's uh, very similar numbers actually in California, despite a very different population structure. Um, okay. And similarly, we argue that uh, we show rather that um, 
if age-based eligibility is kind of pegged to a mortality level, like let's say if we're if we're saying that 60, people who are above 65 um, should be eligible for vaccination because their mortality risk is so great because COVID is really responsive to age, um, well, okay, but people of color in uh, in Minnesota who are age 50 have higher mortality than the state aggregate at age 65, but they mm-hmm. had to wait three months longer for vaccine eligibility. So that's what we mean about um, this system has been prioritizing white people, um, even when people of color who were not eligible were at higher risk. Um, and see. so then from that setup, we tried to evaluate um, how well could you do with other kinds of schemes that try to use geographic risk in different ways to set up alternative eligibility structures. So yeah, so 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 tell me more about that. So I guess I guess one of the I guess the way to talk about this is because you you settle on geographical targeting. So you say so, so you sort of test test geographical and, and I and if I recall correctly, you have different types of ge- getting it different ways of getting at geographical targeting, right? So maybe talk talk a little bit, um, maybe start by talking a little bit about that and we can continue on from there. Sure, so the reason we started really focusing on geography is, so we have these populations of color who at middle ages are really, really high risk for COVID mortality and they're the same kinds of mortality levels that white people are at much older ages, but they mm-hmm. haven't been vaccine eligible. So the question is, how do you make them vaccine eligible? Well, there's three ways you could go. You could drop the eligibility for everyone to middle ages, uh, but that we, we look at that actually, and, and there's a lot of problems with doing that when you have vaccine scarcity, right? So we're thinking not about now, but um, in the situation of a few months ago, Um, If you went down to age 50 very quickly, which some states did, um, you run the risk that really low risk people, relatively speaking, use up all the vaccine um, and the high risk people, whether they're relatively younger people of color or they're old people of any racial group, can't get access even though they're eligible because there's not enough. Um, And that's that's like the 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 white assistant professor. It's the white assistant professors with cell phones and and high-speed internet who are gonna snag all the appointments. Exactly, and so that's one strategy. It's a bad strategy. Another strategy is you could, um, you could directly target eligibility to race. And some places have done this, um, and the CDC actually kind of backdoor recommends this uh, because they use something called the Social Vulnerability Index which is a measure that they developed to um, try to measure which places are at high risk. And it directly encodes into the index um, whether they are non-white populations and whether the dominant language is not English. Um, So that is a viable strategy that places have used. It's also a very controversial strategy. It's not clear that it's legal. Um, It's also of course, very politically controversial. And there was also, I think, a a fear that it could, um, especially a a very public and aggressive version of it, um, could reinforce fears that the vaccine 
was a part of a eugenic program. And I think those fears are not so strong now, but if you're thinking back to like January, when you know people didn't really know other people who'd been vaccinated yet, and this thing was very, very new, and we're thinking about how are we gonna reach people now? Um, I think the idea of saying, we're gonna target this toward black people, for example, um, would have made a lot of people uh, justifiably quite fearful of it in ways that could be very counterproductive. And so for all of those reasons, it would be very good to have an alternative that is not directly race-based. And so what we looked at is if you use geography as a kind of race, like race neutral on its face proxy for risk, how well can you actually do? And then, as you said, we used a couple of different strategies um, for identifying high-risk geographies, such as, for example, um, looking at economically deprived metro areas, which in both of these states, California and Minnesota, is like really where the action is for COVID mortality. Um, in California, uh, then the next worst places are the economically deprived, more rural areas. Um, they're not that rural, but you know, non-metro. In Minnesota, where places really are rural, um, it's, it's not that at all. It's, it's, you know, kind of normal places in the metro area. Um, so it's not the same distribution, but in both places, it's these economically deprived metro neighborhoods um, in the big cities where um, COVID, COVID risk was really extraordinarily high. Okay. And so basically the idea is that is that is that by targeting these metro areas, that's really where, where where you get the most bang for your buck, so to speak, given vaccine scarcity. Yeah, and so we look at like, well, what if you had taken those areas and you'd said, okay, in economically deprived metro areas, when the rest of the state is eligible at age 65, in those areas, you'll be eligible at age 55, because that's where your mortality is higher than the state aggregate for 65. Um, how, if, if that had been the rule, how much better would you do? And the answer at targeting mortality, at, at, at really at giving the vaccines to the people who are actually at the highest risk. And the answer is you would do better. You would not do as better as if you did direct race, uh, racial targeting. Um, and part of that is that these neighborhoods are not that big these really economically deprived metro areas, it's actually not that many people that live in them. And so directing a lot of vaccines there would not have changed the overall aggregate rates by all that much. But to me, that also is kind of, um, kind of tragic because it's also saying, this is not that many people whose risk is really extraordinary. It would not have been that many vaccines to say we're gonna really uh, prioritize them and make sure that they have access. Um, and we should have done that and, and our states uh, did not do that. So in the realms of some very, uh, a fairly small gesture that could have had these dramatic results is what you're finding. Yeah, and so it, it, it's not that it would have had, it's not that it would have made like a really great uh, difference in the overall state mortality rate, um, it could have made a noticeable difference, um, but not a huge one. But, mm -hmm. you know, for those people, right, like, uh, I think we have good reason to think that um, those are, are people whose risk was really high in 2021, 
um, who should have been protected and they weren't. Yeah, no, that's a really important point. Um, so I guess my, my follow-up to this is, is uh, related to the question I asked about the other paper about the sort of mechanisms or pathways of systemic racism. And so, you know, the way that you're talking about this is you're, 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 you're talking about this geographic targeting as mainly a sort of more politically palatable proxy, a nice alliteration, um, for getting at the real underlying problem, which is racism, right? Um, so, 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 so to what extent would you say that it's really sort of a proxy that you're just sort of doing as a next best option or do you see it as really targeting one of the key mechanisms through which this systemic racism is working? Or is it some combination of those? I do want to say both. I mean, so I think that one way to frame this question is why were people of color at such high risk? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of debate about how much of that is happening. So in any infectious disease, there's the risk of exposure. And then there's also your vulnerability if you're exposed. Given infection. And so, yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, differences could be driven by either one. And there's a lot of debate for COVID about which one is really doing the work. Um, mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of studies that came out last summer on very different populations that were very convincing, arguing that the action is really in exposure. Um, I've also seen some pushback, right, that seems convincing that argues the other way. And I think we're going to be arguing about this for a long time. On the exposure side, um, I think that workplaces are really key. And mm -hmm. workplaces mean not just where you yourself work, but also where do the people that you live with work? Where do people who they come in contact with through work, who do they also live with, right? So there's this kind of tight intermingling because our economy and our residences are so segregated together. Um, they have this um, way of really concentrating risk. And then that's even more true for populations who live in uh, multi-generational households uh, where you tend to have patterns of contact that um, on the one, you know, basically the young people are at great risk of spreading the disease because they tend to have more social contacts um, and the older people um, are not at as much risk of spreading it, but are at more risk if they get it. And having the two mm -hmm. um, living together is very dangerous in a context yeah. like this. Um, so there's that whole piece of things. And, and some of the things that I just said um, Right, so, so I would characterize most of that as being about exposure. Um, then there's, uh, on the vulnerability side, there's comorbidities, right? And so there's a whole, there's the whole picture of all of the ways that your experience of um, American capitalism as a person of color put you at bodily risk um, that then get compounded in the pandemic or have all these extra um, risks attached to them should you be exposed to COVID. Um, but vulnerability can also look like things like um, if you come down with COVID and you call 911 because you can't breathe, do the paramedics believe you and take you to the hospital? Or do they say that's just an asthma attack and leave you um, as happened to uh, a number of people in New York um, last spring um, where I was at the time, um, uh, including some people who then died. 
right? So that's not, that's not part of our stereotypical picture of what vulnerability given exposure means, but that is part of vulnerability. Do you have access to care? Um, and, and that's also been uh, structured by racism in very kind of dramatic ways. Absolutely. Um, so that's, that's uh, some really key findings that you, that you uh, got from, from this comparative uh, Minnesota-California um, research. Um, I'd like to hear what has come of this. So were you able to shift vaccine distribution strategies in any way as a result of your research? Yeah, this is kind of a mixed bag. So on the level of shifting state policy, no. On the level of shifting health system policy, yes. And in Minnesota, that matters because we had a, an extremely decentralized vaccine uh, distribution plan. And so basically the states set these really broad eligibility guidelines, but then within those guidelines, all of these individual health systems, so meaning like this network of hospitals, for example, um, they all had the freedom to set their own uh, criteria for who they would prioritize and how they would do outreach to them. And so we started presenting some of these results, um, JP Leiter and I did, I wanna say late January um, to health systems here in the state. And um, we had only an early version of the results then, but we had these kind of key points about why age-based eligibility alone prioritizes lower risk white people above higher risk people of color. And, um, and the, the results I think made a big impact on some of the health systems. Um, and you know, it, to a degree that actually was a little bit surprising to me because I'm a demographer and uh, you know, saying that age structures matter is sort of like the demographer's platitude. But the people who we were talking to were experts in individual level health in a way that I'm totally not um, but some of these points about, you know, okay, you know that age really matters and you know that race matters to COVID, um, but you haven't actually recognized that there's a trade-off between the two because the, old, the white population is older than populations of color. Um, and that means there's a tension here. Um, those were actually new ideas to them. And so we started working with some health systems and kind of weighing in on their plans. And so I would say that these results had an impact um, at the margins, but not in like a central reorganization of the vaccine, you know, nothing like that. Yeah, so we, the sociologists have still not stormed the Winter Palace, so unfortunately. Um, so uh, this has been really uh, fascinating, this discussion. Uh, I've been just talking with uh, Elizabeth Rickley Field, uh, at the sociologist at the University of Minnesota. Um, is there anything else you want to add about sort of some global remarks about sort of the, 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 take, the key takeaways from this research and maybe something about what lies ahead? Oh gosh, I don't know. Um, it's whatever year it's been. Um, you know, I think, I mean, in terms of what lies ahead in, in research, I think there's a lot that we're going to be trying to unravel about COVID for quite a long time. And some of the pieces that are particularly of interest to me right now are, you know, what we've been talking about just now is all deaths that were recorded as COVID. But there's also a lot of deaths that were not recorded as COVID. And um, there are more deaths among people of color 
that happens, you know, in 2020 in excess of what would have been expected um, than there are for white people. And so understanding like, was that because people of color were less likely to have their COVID diagnosed? Is that because um, other aspects of the medical system shutting down were particularly disadvantageous to people of color or, or what was it? You know, so that's, you know, that's a sort of like near term target. I'm actively working on that. Um, yeah. And so are many other people. Um, so there's things like that, but I think there's also a sort of bigger picture kind of things that are at stake. So for me, I think the finding that white mortality last year was probably still not as high as black mortality always is every year. At its best. Um, at its best. Um, that was kind of a re reorienting finding for me. And I, I think this question of um, just kind of grappling with all of the time that is being taken from people out of their lives that they should have and that their loved ones should have with them. Um, and thinking, trying to figure out like, well, what are the things that would make the biggest difference to start to try to undo that and make it right for the next people um, who that hasn't happened to yet? I think, um, I think that is really the question that um, I hope to be working on for a long time. That's a great way to end things uh, for this discussion. I'm sure there will be plenty more to come. But for now, I really want to thank you for your time, uh, Professor Elizabeth Wrigley-Field from the University of Minnesota. Thank you for uh, this inaugural episode of maybe a recurring feature, the Marxist Sociology Blog podcast. So thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Barry. Okay. Let's... Thank you for listening to this episode of the Marxist Sociology Blog Podcast. I'm your host, Barry Eidlin. Thanks to the section on Marxist Sociology of the American Sociological Association for sponsoring the blog and this podcast, and thanks to our editor-in-chief, Mike McCarthy. For more accessible summaries of current Marxist sociological research, check us out online at www marxistsociology.org. Until next time, stay inquisitive and never underestimate the power of the organized working class.